0: Welcome to The Next Generation. I'm Victoria Ceccia. Join me as we chat with young Italian wine people shaking up the wine scene. We're going to geek out on a grape or grape fam and then hear about all the wild wine things our guests have been up to, from vineyard experiments to their favorite wine bars. Welcome back to another episode of The Next Generation on the Italian Wine podcast. Hope you are feeling well today. I'm feeling pretty groovy today. I'm very caffeinated. I do not have a drop of wine in my system yet. Hope you do, though. <laughs> or you plan to. Uh, either way, we have some fun things today to pair with your coffee, wine, cleanse, I don't know, from wine. Hopefully not. <laughs> um, today, 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 we have an lovely lovely guest James Marshall from Tenuta Licinia a wonderful winery in Lucignano in Tuscany. We are going to chat with him about all the fine things that he is up to as well as all things happening in his special little nook of Tuscany little spoiler alert he isn't Tuscan as you can guess from his name but I will not tell you his story yet. You can either skip my blabbing about great varietals to find out faster in a couple minutes, or you can stay here and learn a little bit more about uh, a fun little Tuscan grape. James does not grow this grape. I just feel like, you know, we have to talk a little bit more about grapes other than Sangiovese and Tuscany. Um, And not to say that we don't, but we have to give a little bit more love to the must-know grapes of Tuscany uh, besides Sangiovese. And we're taking this again from the Italian wine Unplugged 2.0 book that you can also have in your hands like I do, available now. Let's go into it. Okay, so what grape do you think we're going to talk about today? I'll give you a minute to guess. Got an idea? Well, I'm telling you, it's Mammolo. So Mammolo is a grape typically found in Tuscany, and is used as a frequent blending partner with, drumroll, Sangiovese, especially in the Vino Nobile di Montepulciano blend. You heard of that wine before? If you haven't, do a quick Google search. It's pretty famous. Um, The name Mamolo comes from the word Mamola, which refers to the color violet and the flower of the same name. This grape is considered to be the parent of Polera Nera, and it might be a relative of Chilagyolo and Sangiovese grape varietals. You'll see that often. You know, a lot of grapes grown, well, originating in the same area usually have some close relationships, Chilagyolo and Sangiovese being other grapes found in Tuscany. And going into the vineyard now with Mamolo, back to what I was saying before, Mamolo is an ancient grape variety. It has many biotypes, which are generally not separated in the vineyards. And as indicated by the name, Mamolo wines are defined by their violet aroma. So now we're moving into the glass. So if you were to have Mamolo in the glass by itself, which is usually not, you'd find it blended, but if you were, um... It has violet aromas with flavors of black cherry and raspberry on the palate. It actually has unstable anthocyanins and produces light-colored wines that tend to oxidize easily, which is why it is typically used in blends and only in small quantities, as I said before. Anthocyanins are what produce those colors, the richer colors in wine. And finally, it produces still and dry red wines, which you probably got from before, so now. Time to bring on our lovely, lovely guest, James Marshall, straight from Tenuta di Cinia in Lucignano, in the province of Arezzo, in Tuscany. Now you can find him. And here he is. Ciao, James. Welcome back.
1: <laughs> Hi, Victoria. Nice, nice to speak.
0: Yeah. So I can say this, that um, me and James talked before, <laughs> and then we had a technical difficulty, and now we're back, which I'm happy about, because... Life has changed a lot since, what was it, December or January when we last chatted?
1: Yeah, I think it was probably my fault, the technological era. But um, yeah, it's nice to have a second second go at this.
0: <laughs> I mean, no, no, it's, it's my fault, but we don't need to go into that. And, you know, I expect, you know, we're the next generation. We're supposed to be the ones that really know how to deal with technology, but I often find it's quite the opposite. Sometimes
1: yeah me too
0: so how was your Easter?
1: Easter was really nice so I went back and saw my family in um, in Belgium and um, yeah it was a lot of cousins and then occasionally relations who you've never met before and um, yeah all the different generations and we have a lot of new members some some new babies in the family so it's it's very nice and obviously lots of chocolate because it's it's belgium
0: so as everyone can hear james is not italian he's Belgian, but a belgian tuscan now <laughs> or by adoption of <laughs> i don't know how to even say that gosh trying to put words together you now live in tuscany and have a winery that is what i'm trying to say yes tell us a little bit about that <laughs>
1: Well, it was, um, so my granddad started the the winery about 20, 20 years ago. I mean, and he'd been living in Tuscany for a long time before that even. And there was this little, um, there was a very small plot of vines, which, I mean, it, it was badly planted with not great plant material, but um, he always said that it had, it had been a famous vineyard um, a long, long time ago, long before him. And when he retired, he decided he would um, replant, replant the vineyards. And um, and when he got um, a bit older and couldn't really manage things anymore, I took over about three and a half years ago. Um, and I was, I was not, um, I was not, you know, being trained or I didn't, I didn't sort of go to enological school or anything. Um, I was doing a, my doctorate in the UK, and. Um, yeah, but when the opportunity came up I sort of started spending more time there and I just got sucked in and, and moved there. Um speaking zero Italian and I didn't know anyone. But um in Tuscany, uh very quickly you become um you've you become part of the local community and and um and it's been it's been really nice. It's been very nice.
0: I'm curious to know, like when you first moved there, like what was that like for you culturally? do you have any like funny moments when it, of you trying to settle into this small little town um as the Belgian <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah well, yes, because it was quite a strange arrival because about a month after I arrived um I had a few people in the village asking me about about kangaroos and um <laughs> What had happened was is that another Belgian, I think there are probably two Belgians in you know a huge area, but the other Belgian who I actually don't know in the area had had these kangaroos and they'd escaped during COVID um, and they were living in the woods around the village. But of course, in, as soon as I arrived, everybody thought I was the Belgian who'd released the kangaroos. Um, and yeah, and so these kangaroos were living around our vineyard for about three or four years. One of them has recently passed away, sadly, but I think another one is still running around the woods. Um, and it was a huge thing for the village because it was in all the national newspapers. And um, and I was wrongly identified as the, <laughs> as the person who had let the kangaroos loose.
0: I can imagine that conversation because you, like, at that point, probably italian was not very good and they're asking if you have a kangaroo and you're like am i understanding this correctly are you asking me if i have a kangaroo (laughs) i
1: it was exactly like that
0: (laughs) it's like no no i can understand your question i'm just i think i'm tripping out oh my gosh have you ever seen these kangaroos
1: uh i've seen them i've seen one kangaroo once and i was just in the vineyard and and below the vineyard i just you just heard sort of this a lot of leaves being moved around in, in the forest next to the vineyard and suddenly so a little, little kangaroo. They're not the biggest kangaroos. I was expecting something really big. They're quite small kangaroos, but they're still, <laughs> I guess, yeah. And it just hopped out the woods. It had a look around. I do not think it was scared of us because it sort of looked at us and then, and then it retreated back into the woods. But we were just impressed at how easily they were surviving in in a completely new environment
0: kangaroos in Tuscany i would have never even thought at all i i don't even know what i would do if i saw a kangaroo in italy in general i I, why did you ever find out why they brought kangaroos there in their belgian so hmm
1: yeah do you know the story (laughs) i'm trying to piece it together but i don't actually know the people who who had them i think they sort of had some llamas and some kangaroos in a. In a fit, in a field, because I don't know why. But I'm not sure what their motivation was.
0: I it just like I'm gonna move to Tuscany, and then I'm gonna have kangaroos and llamas. It's it just you know, you know, everyone has their own dream, James. I guess, I guess, and sometimes you have to take the the, <laughs> the blame for somebody's very, very bold dream. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's crazy. I mean, and so just heard the. Uh, listeners to understand, you are in Lucignano, correct?
1: Yeah, Lucignano is a, a very small and a very traditional. It's a hilltop village, and the streets go in the circle, you know, in in circles that go get smaller and smaller. It's a very, it's a very beautiful village, but it's not the most touristy one, and it's right in the, it's in the center of Italy, pretty much. It's not near the coast; it's in central Tuscany, and it's quite a sort of hilly mountainous area with a lot of forest.
0: And what makes Lucignano special to you? Like, what do you love about it?
1: Well, I think it's, well, I mean, apart from certain specific architectural features, I mean, it has this one staircase, which looks very modern, but it's from the Renaissance. And it's the staircase going up to the, to the sort of, I mean, it's one of those villages that has a ridiculously huge um, cathedral for the population, but it has this very, interesting staircase that leads up to the to the cathedral and i think it's a really interesting feature because it looks kind of like a, a sort of mid-century piece of design but actually it's it's really old but i mean apart from that i think what's 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 nice in the village is i mean it's a uh, it's managed to stay it's very beautiful but it it's not too it's not very touristy it doesn't get too crowded and there's still a very community life and that's really nice I, it's I mean, it's quite an old I mean, the average age is probably over sixty in the village. But everybody knows each other and um and everyone's very, very welcoming and there's a lot of village gossip and
0: Oh the gossip.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very nice place to live and I came from from the city and yeah, and from towns and it's it's a strange thing being in a place where everybody knows you and the rhythm of life is determined by by the village and not you know by the news or anything so it's 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 a big change and it's but it's a very nice place i highly recommend lucignano and we have a great mayor at the moment who is doing lots of things to make the village you know a more attractive place for for people to come visit so yeah please come to lucignano
0: you're like bring the youth, come on the next generation, come hang out. Oh my gosh, uh, I'm sure that that sounds. So I oh, also I just want to say like I hear the 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 birds and whatnot in your the background and I'm actively jealous of that. Peace in nature because all I have is the construction of an Italy happening. Well, construction, the deconstruction of an Italy happening behind me. It's such a contrast, and I'm like, maybe I should go to Lucignano like tomorrow. (laughs) But on that note, I think I don't know. This has me thinking a little bit about you know Tuscany and uh, how it is really different where where you go in the region. And since the region is so famous, it's you know one of the top most famous wine regions in Italy. you know massing it all together of course but given that you you know you're not from there of course you have that that um love for it from your grandfather but what makes that part of Tuscany different than you know let's say I don't know Siena or some another area in your perspective
1: oh that's a that's a good question I mean I think that in to start off with what makes it not different is it is it this kind of little commun- communal life that you have in in Nucignano where the community is very close knit, um, I think it's something that you find a lot in Tuscany and it's a really nice part of Tuscany. It, I think it's one of the things that explains also, um, you know, the, why the wine culture is, is so good in, in, in Tuscany. But I think what makes our area special. If we move on to, on to the winemaking side, I mean, one thing that's interesting about the area is historically, and we look, you know, really a long time back, it was just as famous an area as, as other areas that are more famous in Tuscany. So like the Chianti Classico, or, or, or Montelcino or something. It was a long time ago, very famous, but in the 20th century in Italy, you had a lot of social upheaval and a lot of changes. And the, you know actually in the whole of Tuscany the wine culture um, changed into a, a more of a mass production culture and when um, producers started seeking and trying to make more higher end wines i think lucignano didn't didn't and the area around it they didn't really sort of start rebuilding that that heritage i mean and it's it's one of the things that i think we're trying to do. The the thing that's interesting about Lucignano, though, I think from, which is also interesting about Lucignano from a winemaking side, is that it's um, geologically not at all a, a harmonious area. The, the types of soils change every 30 meters. And most of those soils are, you know, either okay or not fantastic for wine. But you have these very small, tiny patches, which are s- super interesting and can make really beautiful wines. And those soils are different from, from the other. They have some similar types of soils to, you know, Panzano and Montelcino, but, you know, also with a slight difference. And I think that's kind of the exciting thing in a way. Um, it's more Burgundian in, in the sense that you have these tiny little patches of really beautiful soils where the potential is, I think, nearly unlimited. Whereas, and most of the area is not superb necessarily for for making wine so it's it's a lot about identifying where to plant and um which vineyards in particular to bring back and and it's very interesting
0: are you enjoying this podcast don't forget to visit our youtube channel mama scenery now back to the show No, it, it really is because um, if you're discovering something that's new in, in a region that often seems, you know, already, you know, super present on in the market and the palates of people all over the world, it, it's it's almost extra special because it's almost, because it, it, it's in that like shadow, but in a good way, if that makes sense. The fact that wine culture and and food culture as well in Italy as a whole, you know, it, it's what it, we know it as right now is, is very much, I, I can't say a, it's a recent innovation in the sense that what Italy was like a hundred years ago um, was completely different. And you bringing up the fact that how Tuscany moved into mass production, and obviously it's moved away from that um, to an extent uh, for the most part. And I think given that your well, given that your grandfather w- went to Tuscany was, what was his ambition to create like really stylistic wines or did he just love making wine and wanted to be in Tuscany?
1: I mean, he, he was a very, he was quite an academic, um, person and he really loved, so he loved, um, especially Gébert Sauvignon mainly because that was, you know, what he was brought up on when he was young in Belgium. That's what everybody had. And, um, and he, um, I think for him the thing that he but he loved the Burgundian culture. he has some Burgundian cousins who he would visit, and he loved these tiny little production, these little micro cuvées, and these and you know having the real vigneron style to the you know, within the wine making approach, et cetera and um and you know I think because of that that those Burgundian cousins, he became very interested in um soil quality and and especially subsoils. And today in the wine world, you sort of have, um, I think the majority view is that at least when you speak to the more academic side of the of the wine world, that subsoils maybe aren't um, as important as a lot of winemakers make them out to be. I think that subsoils are really central and, and the most important thing in many ways. And so I think his view was, is that, he knew that there were these very beautiful subsoils around Lucignano, and you know the idea was to try and and discover them. And so there was a lot of research into identifying you know, these very small parcels which could be which could be interesting. And I think that sort of became nearly intellectual for him. And he didn't. I mean, he only planted a very small or four hectare vineyard. But he was looking for other things, I think, and when I took over, I continued that that search and um yeah I, and i think I think that was sort of one of the motivating factors to make these really small production cabs rather than you know the big estate cab, but these tiny selected parcels um on on the on the soils but yeah, so <laughs> I think that's sort of if from the wine side, I think that was really what hit motivated him but there was another side which was just there's something very um, romantic about Tuscany and, and beautiful about Tuscany and it partially in in the preservation of of the villages and the towns and all the stories and and the history that comes that comes with it so I think there was sort of those those two things together that made it um, irresistible to him.
0: I can imagine. I mean, I always think about what it what it would be like without cell phones or anything to visit a place like that, and have like a really just raw kind of experience. Because now we're so overwhelmed with with visual content and whatnot that we almost like have these expectations and ideas of places. But back in, like, I'm I'm assuming your grandfather came to Tuscany in what, maybe the, the 40s or 50s?
1: In the, yeah, in the 60s.
0: The 60s? Oh, my God, the 60s in Italy. Wow. Oh, my gosh. What a time to be alive. Like, I could only imagine the thrill, you know? And even in speaking of thrill, it's quite rebellious in a way. I mean, maybe not rebellious because your 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 grandfather is an Italian, but still, to like come to Italy and plant vineyards with Cab Sav, it's it's bold.
1: The truth is, is that well, I think when he did, I mean, he he decided to plant. I think at the end of the nineties in the two thousand.
0: Ah, okay, so it was like a later thing.
1: Yeah, it was a later, it was a later thing. I mean, because there was a vineyard. And it was it was a mixture of plant material, and and I mean it was not very well planted, and um, it needed to be replanted. And so for a while, he sort of, you know, with a local farmer, um, for that vineyard would just give it to the local, give the grapes to a local a local farmer who would make a, a wine. But I think that as time went on, he saw in that parcel that there was a lot of potential. And he really decided to replant the Cabernet Sauvignon there in the late nineties, two thousands, and then with all the permits, etc. Um, I think he finally plant started planting in two thousand and five only. So it's it's sort of a he wasn't necessarily I wouldn't describe him as a pioneer of Cabernet in Tuscany, definitely not. <laughs> he was following a trend in a certain way, I think. Except maybe what distinguished him is he planted with the intention never to expand the labels into larger productions and i think that's maybe something that that distinguished his view or the view of the of the view of the winery still today its cab sauvignon was often planted to rival the big brands of bordeaux and show that tuscany could do you know just as interesting cabs as, as bordeaux maybe um but yeah in Bordeaux, the, you know, they make a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand bottles of 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 the big brands. And I think with us, it's three or four thousand bottles usually. Um, it depends.
0: I mean, it is quite romantic though, going back to what you're saying, because he has th- had this plot that he was like his neighbor, like his, you know, his his uh, well, maybe not his neighbor, like his child in a way, watching it, like seeing how it's it can grow up, and then he decided to finally turn it into. Vineyard, so he like kind of got to know it in a way over many many years. It's, I just, I'm just imagining your grandfather like having this plot of land and always looking at it, analyzing it, and then one day it's like,
1: yeah, it's going to become. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that you know, actually, for for sure, some of the motivation comes from just him, you know, having seen it there, and and <laughs> you're unable not to imagine, you know, or dream a little about how it might turn out, etc. Um yeah.
0: But did you spend a lot of time like coming to Tuscany like with your grandfather before you moved?
1: Yeah, I mean I I think for me when I was at I was I wasn't living in in Italy. So it was really uh where we would be sent for our summers when we were when we were young. So we would spend two months there every summer. And so a lot of that was, you know, learning about wine and and thinking about it and being taught by him and also the other people who, who were working with him. And um, and then when I was, yeah, when I left school, I did uh, a few months in, in working in some other wineries. And that's when I discovered how backbreaking um, wine making or the viticultural part of wine making is, which I also think is something that's not talked about enough. But anyway, um, it's,
0: oh, I agree. Not to cut you off. It's, it's one of the things I think people, it, when it comes to romanticizing wine, you're like, it's, it's it's agricultural labor. It's
1: medieval labor.
0: Like it's literally, and then not to mention like being, it, yes, medieval labor in the vines, especially if you want to make wines, you want to treat your vines with as less intervention as possible as, you know. Yeah. But and even if you go in the winery, it's like that manual labor, you could lose a hand. I almost saw someone lose a hand in a winery. It's, it's, it's no joke.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, it's true that in the winery you can have very long days, especially during the the vinifications. And, and, but, um, but I think it's in the vineyard where I think I was just, before really doing those days of work, I didn't understand. I, I couldn't imagine imagined what it was like to, to work in a vineyard. I mean, doing nine hours of pruning And your back is sort of bent over for the for the whole nine hours, and I mean, there's something good about it for the soul in a certain way. And you always have this incredible (laughs) sense of achievement when when the day is over. But it's I was shocked, and I was just I just had a lot of admiration because you saw there were so many people who had been doing this for forty years and just working every day in the vineyard or doing these agricultural tasks for for their entire lives and I I was yeah I was very impressed and you know two months for me when I was 18 and still a bit of a tween felt like a very very long time and I was pretty proud of getting through it but um yeah and then yeah and then I sort of I was planning on becoming an academic um and then you know in the later phases of my doctorate I sort of was was presented with this opportunity. And yeah, as I said, I just, I just left.
0: <laughs> You're like, I'm gonna become a medieval laborer.
1: <laughs> well, it's. I think on the other hand, there's some really good, amazing and fun things about making wine. I think it's one of the few forms of agriculture where you produce, you know, maybe let's say a more sophisticated product. And there's this other side, which is, I think, winemaking is quite intellectual and very difficult in certain ways. So you do have to do a lot of reading and studying and think carefully about things. So you have lots of different dimensions. Um, The manual labor is one central, is the central part, but they're really nice and less back baking paths to winemaking too.
0: Well, I think being a winemaker really, of course, it depends on your approach, but it exercises like every aspect of your body, your personality, your, your, you know, skill set, because it's like, especially as a small producer... You know, you, you're taking care of the vines, so you got your medieval labor. Then you have to make the wine, so you have to have a balance of understanding science, a bit of chemistry. Then you have to sell the wine, so you have to be a salesperson. And then you also have to like obviously manage the business side. And I think for me that's what I always found beautiful about being on the winemaking mm-hmm. side is it's like it, it it's really like challenges those multitasking skills.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you use every part of your every part of your brain. I mean and and that is very nice. The variety is, is a really nice part of the of the job. I mean, I think I'm I know that I'm not so good in everything that's branding, et cetera, but so I yeah. But that's the other nice thing is that with these very small businesses, you can that are family owned, I just have lots of cousins who I can call up and, and ask for help and advice it's that, that's a really other nice part of the uh, of the job is just that you're, the company is sort of i mean in many ways it's a, it's very serious about the winemaking etc but when it comes to the commercial side i mean there's just not the resources to have a whole commercial team so it becomes like this very familial and and yeah and this very family orientated you know program where we come up with ideas together and 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 work together it's that's
0: the very Italian side of it right it's like you get the whole families in it and it's it's um, well I always say this and it's probably everyone on the, po- the podcast is like we get it or hey, Victoria the Italian wine is about like community it's about like it's it's not about the commodity it's about the community and like if you miss that aspect it, it the wines Lose a little bit of that soul, kind of like what you're saying earlier. Like the, you need that soul in in the wine. And I I know it sounds so it's philosophical, but it's when you don't have that, then I don't know. It's like don't make the wine. Like make sure it has that basis.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the soul, the soul also just if we speak metaphorically <laughs> about the soul in the wine, <laughs> the, the soul you might just say the this identitarian side to the wine, and in some ways that's what makes the wine. Um, really special but I think that the, I would also say it's the soil and the land that, that you know and that makes that gives it those identities and I think in a way the communal aspect comes from um, or this maybe more sociological aspect comes from the way you interpret um, the soil and what you tra- how you try and translate the soil into the wine so I, I think that that's sort of the communal identity of wines comes from, you know, kind of the way that people interpret or translate wines. Um, and yeah. And then, I mean, that's also, of course, the winemaking and, and the style of the wine that's also, you know, I mean, it always probably a lot of the time is communicating with a historical community and a culture. Um, but at the same time, if I can say the thing that I find more difficult with Italian wine is I just I think that um, always, because in the 20th I mean we talked about this earlier but in the 20th century you had this you know upheaval where that this small community based um, viticulture kind of got replaced by a more industrialized form of if not industrialized with a view of producing quantity over. Uh, over quality, and and I think in certain ways, the not maybe not the new generation. It was the last couple of generations started the the work of really you know improving everything from the its culture to the to the winemaking. But I still think that a lot of the traditions, or things that now seem like traditions, can still be be questioned, and um, especially I think in the understanding of of. Of land and and what you know how we should think about different types of, of vineyards and th- I think that understanding still needs to mature and I sort of look at France and especially Burgundy and I think that the, the Tuscany has the most beautiful soils as beautiful as Burgundy but I don't think that we're yet at the same level as the Burgundians in a certain way we still kind of have some some work to do in things to change
0: there is a big you know narrative especially on the market like for consumers that are you know that don't really know the complexity of italian wines and then the comparison to something like france it becomes you know it, it's an interest. and i'm very curious even though i i can't go into it yet so let's leave it as a cliffhanger for <laughs> the, the audience yeah. but i am interested in t- to knowing why you think that tuscany particularly tuscany Um, is not there yet and what that means. But uh, we do have to kind of wrap it up here, unfortunately. But I did want to ask you one question before we close out, a very, very important one. You had said last time that even though living in Tuscany for a few years now, your Italian is very mediocre. Is it still? Uh, And can you respond in Italian?
1: (laughs) I I would say that it's still extremely mediocre. It's very bad Italian. Um, but at least I, I'm able now to communicate successfully. I usually get my um, intended meaning across now. But no, it's 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 okay. And, um, and yeah, I can say um, ciao.
0: <laughs> you can say ciao. I don't have any kangaroos in my backyard. But if you want some wine, you can come over.
1: <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. Ciao. Um, Non ho canguro in mio campo e vieni a provare il vino quando, quando vuole.
0: <ride> Perfetto! Ooh.
1: I'm sure there were several mistakes uh, in that.
0: As a fellow non-Italian, American thinks you did swell. <laughs> well, thank you so much, James, for coming back on the pod.
1: No, you for having me. And I'm already regretting trying to speak Italian.
0: <laughs> it was great. It was great. Um, uh, well, I can't wait to one day visit Lucignano and maybe see a kangaroo. And yeah, and uh, wishing you best of luck with the growing season here and all your medieval labor. All right. Ciao, James.
1: Bye, Victoria. Bye.
0: As always, a big grazie for hanging out with me today. Remember, you can catch me every Sunday on the Italian Wine Podcast, available anywhere you can get your pots.